Welcome to the Time Machine Talk Show. Here's your host, Miss Ziegler. Hey, 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 awesome AP students! We are back with Time Machine Talk Show. Today we're going to be talking about China. We are on page 133. And while you're getting to that page, don't forget that we're also going to be talking about the differences and similarities between Rome and China. So keep in mind everything that we read from the last podcast and compare it with China as we talk about it today. Okay, so about the same time on the other side of Eurasia, another huge imperial state was in the making, China. Here, however, the task was understood differently. It was not a matter of creating something new, as in the case of the Roman Empire, but of restoring something old. As one of the first civilizations, a Chinese state had emerged as early as 2200 BCE under the Shao, Shang, and Zhou dynasties, had grown progressively larger. By 500 BCE, however, this Chinese state was in shambles. Any earlier unity vanished in an age of warring states, fearing the endless rivalries of seven competing kingdoms. To many Chinese, this was a wholly unnatural and unacceptable condition, and rulers in various states vied to unify China. One of them, known to history as Xinzi Shangdi, succeeded brilliantly. The state of Xin had already developed an effective bureaucracy, subordinated its aristocracy, equipped its army with iron weapons, and enjoyed rapidly rising agricultural output and growing population. Remember, bureaucracy means that it is a government that is run mostly by state officials instead of elected representatives. It also had adopted a political philosophy called legalism, which advocated clear rules and harsh punishments as a means of enforcing the authority of the state. You want to write down that word and the definition, because that's important. We'll be talking about that a lot this year. With these resources, Xi Hongdi launched a military campaign to reunify China, and in just 10 years, soundly defeated the other warring states. Believing that he had created a universal and internal empire, he grandly named himself Xing Di, which means the first emperor. Unlike Augustus, he showed little ambivalence about his empire. That just means that he didn't really care about it as much as Augustus cared about his. Subsequent conquest extended China's boundaries far to the south into the northern part of Vietnam, to the northeast into Korea, and to the northwest, where the Chinese pushed back the nomadic pastoral people of the steppes. Shi Hongdi laid the foundations for a unified Chinese state, which has endured with periodic interruptions to the present. Building on earlier precedents, the Chinese process of empire formation was far more compressed than the century-long Roman effort, but it was no less dependent on military force and no less brutal. Precedent just means an earlier example. So basically like earlier history of the Chinese had shown that it was going to be the same way where they needed a strong military force and they needed to be brutal in their actions and taking over. Scholars who opposed Shi Hongdi's policies were executed and their books burned. 
aristocrats who might oppose his centralizing policies were moved physically to the capital. Hundreds of thousands of laborers were recruited to construct the Great Wall of China, designed to keep out northern barbarians and to erect a monumental mausoleum as the emperor's final resting place. A mausoleum is simply some place that someone is buried. More positively, Xing Hongdi's imposed a uniform system of weights, measures, and currency and standardized the length of axles for carts and the written form of Chinese language. As in Rome, the creation of the Chinese Empire had domestic repercussions, but they were brief and superficial compared to Rome's transition from republic to empire. The speed and brutality of Xing Hongdi's policies ensured that his own Xing dynasty did not last long, and it collapsed unmourned in 206 BCE. The Han dynasty that followed retained the centralized features of Xi Hongdi's creation, although it moderated the harshness of his policies, adopting a milder and more moralistic Confucianism in the place of legalism as the governing philosophy of the state. It was Han dynasty rulers who consolidated China's imperial state and established the political patterns that lasted into the 20th century. So another similarity could be the brutality in which the emperors were taking control. A difference would be legalism. Legalism was not in Rome, so you could compare those two forms of government. You could also compare Confucianism with um, the government in Rome as well. Going on to the next paragraph of consolidating the Roman and Chinese empires, you're going to continue to look for similarities and differences. Once established, these two huge imperial systems shared a number of common features. Both, for example, defined themselves in universal terms. The Roman writer Polybius spoke of bringing almost the entire world under the control of Rome, while the Chinese state was said to encompass all under heaven. Both of them invested heavily in public works such as roads, bridges, aqueducts, canals, protective walls, all designed to integrate their respective domains militarily and commercially. So that first one where it talks about their worlds uh, being large and defining themselves in universal terms, that's just basically saying that they had large empires. That one would be hard to prove in a paper. You couldn't really talk about that much. So I would skip that as a similarity, but definitely put down that they both invested in public works and then put examples of the roads, the bridges, aqueducts, canals, and protective walls. Another word for public works such as those is infrastructure. You'll need to know that word. Infrastructure is used a lot throughout AP history, and it basically just means things that people would use to get around, such as roads and bridges, etc. Furthermore, Roman and Chinese authorities both invoked supernatural sanctions to support their rule. By the first century CE, Romans began to regard their deceased emperors as gods and establish a religious cult to bolster the authority of living rulers. It was the refusal of early Christians to take part in this cult that provoked their periodic persecution by Roman authorities. This part is just talking about the fact that both Roman and Chinese authority used supernatural power, such as God, to show that they had authority to rule. The next paragraph is going to discuss how they did that in China. In China, a much older tradition had long linked events on earth with the invisible realm called heaven. 
In this conception, heaven was neither a place nor a supreme being, but rather an impersonal moral force that regulated the universe. Emperors were called the sons of heaven and were said to govern by the mandate of heaven, so long as they ruled morally and with benevolence. That means kindness. Peasant rebellions, barbarian invasions, or disastrous floods were viewed as signs that the emperor had ruled badly and thus had lost the mandate of heaven. Among the chief duties of the emperor was the performance of various rituals thought to maintain the appropriate relationship between heaven and earth. But moral government meant in practice was spelled out in the writings of Confucius and his followers, which became the official ideology of the empire. So here, your similarity would be that both the authorities used God to support their rule. Is that all you should write? Probably not. I would put down some details about that so that you remember those details when it comes to the reading quiz. So for example, for Rome, you can say that deceased emperors were regarded as gods, and there was somewhat of a religious cult around that, and that Christians rebelled against it. For China, definitely put down that rulers ruled based on the mandate of heaven, and they could lose the mandate of heaven if there were barbarian invasions or floods or rebellions. Then all of a sudden, they weren't liked by the gods anymore, and they shouldn't be in control. So make sure when you're doing this reading that you're also putting down some of the details. That will definitely help you when it comes to reading quizzes and short answers. All right, moving on. Both of these second wave civilizations also absorbed a foreign religious tradition, Christianity in the Roman world and Buddhism in China, although the process unfolded somewhat differently. In the case of Rome, Christianity was born as a small sect in a remote corner of the empire. Aided by the Pax Romana and Roman roads, the new faith spread slowly for several centuries, particularly among the poor and lower class. Women were prominent in the leadership of the early church, as were a number of more well-to-do individuals from urban families. After su suffering intermittent persecution, Christianity in the 4th century CE obtained state support from emperors who hoped to shore up a tottering empire with a common religion, and thereafter the religion spread quite rapidly. So for your notes for Christianity, I would put down that it starts and is aided under the time of Pax Romana. It spreads by using Roman roads. It's particularly uh, powerful for the poor and lower class. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the poor and lower class might like it? I'll give you just a minute to think about that. Hey, that was the right answer. You are so on point with that. It's because Jesus liked the lower class. He helped the lower class. And so, of course, if you are a member of that class, you're going to appreciate the fact that you've been finally seen by a religious leader. Also, women were uh, leaders in the early church. You could put that down. And that they did suffer some persecution. That means that they were killed for their faith. But then emperors started using it to unite their empire. So there's a little bit of notes on Christianity that would be important for later. Then we'll go on. In the case of China, by contrast, ooh, by contrast, there's a difference. Buddhism came from India, far beyond the Chinese world. It was introduced to China by Central Asian traders and received little support from the Han Dynasty. In fact, the religion spread only modestly among China until after the Han Dynasty collapsed. 
when it appealed to people who felt bewildered by the loss of a predictable and stable society. Not until the Sui Dynasty, Emperor Wendy, reunified China did the new religion gain state support, and then only temporarily. Buddhism thus became one of several alternative cultural traditions in a complex Chinese mix, while Christianity, though divided internally, ultimately became the dominant religious tradition throughout Europe. So there you go. That last sentence is a perfect sentence to get down for one of your dis uh, differences, that Buddhism was kind of like an alternative cultural tradition um, it, within like all of these other Chinese philosophies such as Confucianism and legalism. However, Christianity is going to become the dominant religion in Europe. The other thing you should put down about Buddhism is that it comes from India and that it just didn't really receive a lot of support from the higher ups. It was more appealing to the people versus the emperors. All right, going on. The Roman and Chinese empires also had a different relationship in societies they governed. Rome's beginnings as a small city-state meant that Romans and even Italians were always a distinct minority within the empire. The Chinese empire, by contrast, grew out of much larger cultural heartland, already ethnically Chinese. Furthermore, as the Chinese state expanded, especially to the south, it actively assimilated the non-Chinese or barbarian people. In short, they became Chinese culturally, linguistically, which means language, and through intermarriage in physical appearance as well. Many Chinese in modern times are in fact descended from people who at one point or another were not Chinese at all. So that's a good difference for you. Get that down. The Roman Empire also offered a kind of assimilation to its subject peoples. Gradually and somewhat reluctantly, the empire granted Roman citizenship to various individuals, families, or whole communities for their service to the empire or in recognition of their adoption of Roman culture. In 212 CE, Roman citizenship was bestowed on almost all free people of the empire. Citizenship offered clear advantages, the right to hold public office, to serve in the Roman military units known as legions, to wear a toga, and more. But it conveyed a legal status rather than cultural assimilation and certainly did not erase their identities, such as being Greek, Egyptian, or a citizen of a particular city. Various elements of Roman culture, its public buildings, its religious rituals, its Latin language, its style of city life, were attractive, especially in Western Europe, where urban civilization was something new. In the eastern half of the empire, however, things Greek retained tremendous prestige. Many elite Romans, in fact, regarded Greek culture, its literature, philosophy, and art as superior to their own and proudly sent their sons to Athens for Greek education. To some extent, the two blended into a mixed Greco-Roman tradition, which the empire served to disseminate throughout the realm. Disseminate means to spread. Other non-Roman cultural traditions, such as the cult of the Persian god Mithra or the compassionate Egyptian goddess Isis, and most extensively the Jewish-derived religion of Christianity, also spread throughout the empire. Nothing similar occurred in the Han Dynasty of China, except for Buddhism, which established a moder uh, modest presence largely among foreigners. 
Chinese culture, widely recognized as the model to which others should conform, experienced little competition from older, venerated, or foreign traditions. So that's an important difference that I would put down. And you could simply say that in China, things stayed Chinese. Their traditions, their culture, it pretty much stayed the way that it was. It didn't borrow from others except for when it comes to Buddhism, which has somewhat of a presence. Whereas in Rome, there came like this Greco-Roman tradition, which was a mixture of Greek and Roman traditions. You could also mention how Christianity spread throughout. So you can clearly see that when you're writing down these differences, you don't want to not put details. Like, you definitely want the details. All right, moving on. Language served these two empires in important but contrasting ways. Latin, an alphabetic language depicting sounds, gave rise to various distinct languages, such as Spanish, Portuguese, French, Italian, Romanian, whereas Chinese did not. Chinese characters which represented words or ideas more than sounds were not easily transferable to other languages. Written Chinese, however, could be understood by all literate people, no matter which spoken dialect of the language they used. Thus, Chinese more than Latin served as an instrument of elite assimilation. For all of these reasons, the various people of the Roman Empire were able to maintain their separate cultural identities far more than was the case in China. So you want to put something down about the languages and saying that Latin was more versatile because of the way that the language was, that it could help people maintain their cultural identities, versus in China, that was not the case. All right, moving on. Politically, ah, here we go with the politics, both empires established effective centralized control over vast regions and huge populations. So that's a similarity, but here's the difference. But the Chinese, far more than the Romans, developed an elaborate bureaucracy to hold the empire together. Remember we talked about bureaucracy being unelected officials that are running the government? So you could put that down as your political difference in that China had more of a bureaucracy than the Romans did. The Han Emperor Wudi established an imperial academy for training officials for an emergency I'm sorry, emerging bureaucracy with a curriculum based on the writings of Confucius. This was the beginning of the civil service system, complete with examinations and selection by merit, which did much to integrate the Chinese empire and lasted into early 20th century. Write down the civil service system. That is basically this process of taking examinations and getting the job in the government based on how smart you were and if you're able to pass these examinations. That's what it means, selection by merit. Roman administration was a somewhat ramshackle affair, relying more on regional aristocratic elites and the army to provide cohesion. Unlike the Chinese, however, the Romans developed an elaborate body of law applicable equally to all people of the realm, dealing with matters of justice, property, commerce, and family life. Chinese and Roman political development thus generated different answers to the question of what made for good government. For those who inherited the Roman tradition, it was good laws, whereas for those in the Chinese tradition, it was good men. So there you have it. There's the big difference. Finally, both Roman and Chinese civilizations had marked effects on the environment. Oh, here we go with the environment. Put this down. The Roman poet Horace complained of the noise and smoke of the city 
and objected to the urban sprawl that extended into the adjacent fertile lands. Roman mining operations and the smelting of metals led to extensive deforestation and unprecedented levels of lead in the atmosphere. Large-scale Chinese ironworking during the Han Dynasty contributed to substantial urban air pollution, while the growth of intensive agriculture and logging stripped the land of its grass and forest cover, causing sufficient soil erosion to turn the river into its characteristic yellow-brown color. What had been known simply as the river now became the Yellow River. So go ahead and summarize that in your notes. Just put a couple bullet points about some of the ways that they affected the environment. And that wraps up this edition of Rome and China on the Time Machine Talk Show. And as always, if you have any questions, just let me know. Just like the Friends song, I'll be there for you. <laughs> I'm kind of dating myself there, telling you how old I am, but huge Friends fan here. Anyway, thank you for listening.